So we are on lesson six, which is uh, if you if you've been following along, kind of the table of contents. Um, lessons one through four were understanding the gospel better, and then starting with lesson five, which we looked at last week, we talked about walking by the Spirit, and um, this week we are going to be talking about um, the importance of God's word in our lives. Next week we'll be talking about the importance of prayer in the lives of Christians. So this, uh, there are three sections to the Discovery Book One, and the middle section of that book is about growing in the and our growing in the gospel, uh, availing ourselves to the means of growth that God has supplied to us. And of course, as we've said, this week is about God's word. Now most of you have uh, a copy of the Bible. Um, on your desk, or at your house, on my phone. I have several translations of the Bible. I actually have the Bible in Greek. I have another Bible sitting on my desk. I have several Bibles at home. We have, there are free sites that you can access the Bible on the internet. There's Bible software that will, even if you don't know the original languages that the Bible was written in, which are basically Hebrew and Greek, even if you don't know those languages, there's Bible software that can let you uh, mess around with it a little bit, see what words are behind, how words are used in the Bible. And so we, I think it'd be fair to say, we've got the Bible all around us. I mean, we've got it everywhere. Most of us have multiple copies of the scriptures. And with anything... As with anything that we have in abundance, we tend to take it, can tend to take it for granted, don't we? Um, anytime you just have it everywhere, you can get it anywhere, at any time, uh, you tend, if you're like me, to start taking it for granted. And so hopefully, um, this lesson will be to us a reminder that God's word is not something that we should take for granted in our lives. Um, having multiple copies of the scriptures that you can read is not something that has just always been. If you're familiar with men like John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe is, uh, credited, is credited with having one of the first translations of the scriptures into English. John Wycliffe is called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He lived in the 1300s. And John Wycliffe was absolutely convinced that the Word of God should be available to everyone to read in their own language. Now, that seems kind of like a duh, right? The Word of God should be available for everyone in their own language to read. But, at the time, that was not a, an, accepted, uh, an accepted belief. In fact... The church at the time uh, would say something like this in protest to John Wycliffe. They would say, the jewel of the clergy would become the toy of the laity. And what they meant by that was the jewel, the word of God, was something that was meant for the clergy. It's meant for the church leaders. It's meant for the pastors. We're the ones that look at it. We're the ones that read at it. And we'll just tell you what it says. And we'll just tell you what you're supposed to do. 
And so they would say the jewel of the clergy would become the toy of the laity. If we, if we give the Bible to common people, well, who knows what will happen? It will be as, as common as anything else. And, and who knows what kind of interpretations they'll come up with. And, and, and on and on it goes. We'll, we'll have a mess on our hands. That's the way the majority of church leaders in John Wycliffe's time thought. And so, the scriptures were available only to the elite. Um, there, were, there was a copy of the scriptures, uh, very, very pro- uh, prevalent in Latin, which people couldn't read. And then to the nobility in England, there was, the scriptures were in French that some of them could read. But as far as the common people... They don't, have the, they don't have a copy of God's Word that they can read, or anywhere they go, they can go to access it. Now, one would think that this is a great idea that John Wycliffe has. But of course, he's opposed to that. He's eventually excommunicated from the church and becomes an absolutely hated individual. So much so, that a church council is convened some 20 years after John Wycliffe dies, and they pass a resolution to dig up his bones, cremate them, and throw them in the river as an act of disdain against him. And they did that. They, they found where he was buried, they dug up his bones, ground him up, and tossed him into the river to show their contempt for a person who had the idea of putting the word of God into the hands of people like you and me. And not only that, but they said that any all books that had been written by John Wycliffe were to be searched out and burned, and the copies that they had made um, by hand in English of the scriptures that he had made, those were also to be burned. No, they were not ultimately unsuccessful. But this is a man who was a, a prominent leader in the church that basically gave up everything for God's word because he saw the importance of God's word for everyone. And he was willing to pay a great price for that. And there have been people throughout church history who have not just been exhumed after they've died a natural death, but have actually been martyred um, for their belief and trust in the word of God. And so we would do well to have the same idea and high regard for scripture that they have. Hopefully, as we look at the scriptures that are in our lesson, you will uh, have a renewed interest as I have had in God's Word. Let's look at a few of the sound bites just to get our thinking started. The first one <coughs> says, The Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, authoritative over every aspect of our lives. First of all, I would assume that we would agree with that, but let's do some, let's do some definitions of terms, because we've got some words in there, like inspired and inerrant. Okay, tell me what uh, tell me what those words mean. Do you have an idea what those words mean? Start with inspired. God breathed. Okay, God breathed. Exactly right. Inspired. Um, Sometimes the way we use inspired today is we're, we're struck with a really good idea. Uh, I was inspired to make this or write this or do this or whatever. Um, but the word inspired comes from a Latin word, which translated the Greek word, which means God breathed. And that comes, if you're looking 
um, if, you, if you've probably already seen. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, on page 6.3, all scripture is God-breathed. Some translations of, of the Bible actually put inspired, and that's, what it, that's exactly what it means, God-breathed. Meaning that the source of scripture, though there were, though there were human authors, the, the source of scripture is ultimately God. It is not just a human book filled with human ideas or merely human interpretations of certain events that happened. The Bible takes it a step further and says, no, 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 these aren't just people's interpretations of seeing Jesus or being with Jesus or seeing what Jesus did, but there is a a manner in which the Holy Spirit worked through these men to um, produce scripture that can be rightly said to be God-breathed. God's breathed it out to us. So that's what inspiration means. Okay, what does inerrant mean? Without error. Without error. Okay, so that's the second step. If, if, something, if something comes from God, it has its origin in God, then we would expect it to be without error. Because it is impossible for God to make an error. It's impossible for God to, to mislead. And so we also say that the scriptures are inerrant. And so then it just stands to reason. If we have, if we have words that are God-breathed, they come from God, they are without error, they are therefore, the third word, authoritative. There's no wiggle room with the Bible. The Bible isn't a buffet that you can come to and, and take what you like and leave behind at the buffet what you don't like. The Bible doesn't let you read it that way. <coughs> Go ahead. Sure. Um, I was listening to the Bob Duco show the other day, and mm-hmm. he was talking about how the different translations of the Bible have changed the meanings of things. Okay. He, he said that the translations of the Bible have changed the meaning of things? Well, they, they've used different words, and that they've lost a little bit, like a word here and a word there, and how that could possibly, they were having a discussion. Okay, okay. Well, let's see how we can, uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, it's It's... Good to use the word translations of scripture rather than versions because versions can throw people off and think this is a different version. They're telling me something different in the story. There are differences in translations between the way words are translated, and uh, based on um, based on the philosophy of of translation. So, for instance, uh, translations like the New American Standard Bible, all throughout the book of Ephesians, the last three chapters of Ephesians, and I, I, I might not be answering, so if I get to the end of this and you tell me I'm not answering, I'll, I'll try again. <laughs> um, you get through the, the, into the three chapters of Ephesians, and six times um, the writer of Ephesians uses the word walk. You're supposed to walk in a certain way. And he actually uses the Greek word walk. Whereas... Um, other translations like the NIV, we understand that walk means he's not literally talking about walking, he's talking about your life, the way that you live. And so other translations um, will say, uh, will we'll actually translate it live. So that accounts for some differences in translation. Um, there are also updates to translations where... Um, we understand the exact meaning of Greek words better. And so, and so we can be more clear about exactly what this Greek word means. Um, 
I'm trying to think of, am I getting it? Am I getting at what you're asking, or are you asking something different? I'm just wondering, since it's being manipulated, okay. Well, we have uh, we have literally thousands of Greek manuscripts, and so we can compare Greek manuscripts and and see people have the people have the idea that it's something hidden that we can't go back and look and check the accuracy of a translation, because for instance. Um, the uh, the Mormons will bring a translation of the scripture by your house, and there are uh, places like in in John one where they translate with an agenda, and so they will say in the beginning the John one one says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and your Bibles say and the Word was God, the Mormon Bible which is very similar to our Bible in a lot of ways says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Because they don't believe uh, in the full divinity of Jesus. Um, but you can go back and check the manuscripts to see if they're translating it accurately. And, furthermore, translations are made by committee. So it's not one, it, it, it can't be just one person translating with an agenda to push their particular view of how things are supposed to be. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but we do have thousands of, of manuscripts that we can compare. We have ancient manuscripts, we have not as ancient manuscripts, we can compare to see what the differences are, and uh, we are able, we, not me, but uh, people that know the original languages very well, are able to make very accurate translations of the Word of God. And usually if somebody translates with an agenda, uh, you know it immediately. It, it's in the news immediately. <laughs> so, for instance, uh, the NIV translators, and we're, now we're going to we won't get sidetracked on this too long. But the uh, there's a I actually have <coughs> this Bible is today's New International Version. It was an update from the New International Version, which was done I think in 1979. Uh, today's New International Version opted for more uh, gender inclusive language. Uh, so it's whenever it's the Bible says brothers, it says brothers and sisters, um, so that women don't feel left out. Uh, and they they ended up taking that a little too far, and they got a little loose with their translations. And now there was uh, enough of a of a public outcry, not public outcry, but you know among pastors and theologians said, I don't think this is the direction we go. They're actually undergoing a revision of that. So we can have confidence in in the word of God that we have in our hands, in the English translations that we have. Um, so the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative over every aspect of our lives. Um, let's skip down to number four. Everything you will ever need is in the Bible. We don't need a bunch of other books written by mere men trying to tell us what it's all about. What do you think about that statement? You couldn't disagree more? Okay. Tell me why, John. Because um, that's the kind of setting I was brought up in, where it's basically, it's you, Jesus, and the Bible, and that's all you need for your Christian life. And there's a, I think the danger of it is there's an element of truth to that, and that, yes, the Bible teaches everything we need for godliness mm -hmm. is in it. But like you said, some people know it better than others. Some people know the original languages better. Some people are more able to 
correlate the different passages into a <coughs> useful system that we can practically use, okay. and so that we would be foolish not to use that in our, our discipline, our daily walk. Okay. Okay. Anyone have a counterpoint to that? Agree, kind of agree, kind of disagree? But it's, it's kind of loaded because it's, uh, we don't need a bunch of other books written by mere men trying to tell us what it's all about. It, it, are, they men, are they trying to say they don't tell us what the Bible is all about or tell us what life is all about? Okay. What, 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 uh, what is it? Yeah. I, what, what would it mean? I think try, try, it would be the Bible. Uh, to me, that's the way I'm reading it. We don't need, we don't need uh, a bunch of other books written by mere men trying to tell us what the Bible is all about. Anyone else have thoughts there? Do you want to continue? Let's take it that way for sake of argument so we're all reading the sentence the same way. What, you have a follow-up to what uh, John said? Well, there are many good authors out there that have written books that are an aid to your Christian life in mm-hmm. different path or stages in your life also. Okay. You know, the books of encouragement and sure. you know, relational books. Okay, okay. Timeline books. Timeline books, yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, I, I pretty much believe in that first statement. Okay. At least the time of life that I came in and started reading the Bible. Okay. You know, I, because you might have grown, John might have grown up with it, you know, where I didn't really grow up with it. Mm-hmm. I came, started reading the Bible much later in life. Mm-hmm. So now you are reading this stuff and all of it. Yeah. So, I feel it is a true statement, at least for my, where I am in my life right now. Okay. Anyone else? I agree with it. Can okay. I make a clarification? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't saying like that, because um, First Peter does teach everything we need for life and godliness is in Scripture. I wasn't saying that everything we need isn't in there, but to help us to understand and correlate it, it's... Um, and that's why I said there's an element of truth to that, because that statement in and of itself, I believe, is true. But at the same time, um, somebody growing in their faith is going to need somebody to help explain different parts, to correlate different parts together. And so it would be kind of foolish not to take people who are farther ahead in their understanding and take what they have written to help them um, know what is in the Bible already, not adding to it and not superseding it, but kind of explaining it, correlating it. You know, yeah. And yeah. What are we doing with this? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so we have to, so I guess the, the, the thing that we've got to come to is we've got to have a balance, don't we? Because, you know, one of the things that if you read, uh, if you read this article in the back by Kay Arthur, Kay Arthur um, puts out lots of Bible studies. Um, Erica, my wife, uses, uh, uses her Bible studies. But one of the things that Kay Arthur is really big on is um, before you start reading what everybody else is saying about the Bible, you know, read read the Bible for yourself, you know, and let the let the Bible speak for itself, you know, um, and and then use other study aids. Uh, but then, of course, so so there's the Bible, like John said, and like Jean said, the Bible is sufficient for us. It's the only book that we need. It's the only book that we need. But on the other hand. God has, I think, blessed us with hundreds of years of people who of, of people who have dedicated their lives to studying the Bible, and so we shouldn't be so proud 
as to say what the Holy Spirit the whole, what the Holy Spirit is teaching me in the Bible is important, but not look at important as what the Holy Spirit taught him or her through a lifetime of study either, and and make use of of those study tools. So I think we all probably pretty much agree with that, don't we? Okay, um, let's. Let's skip over to, uh, let's skip the case studies, and let's get right into this uh, 2 Timothy 3 passage. Somebody be willing to uh, just read through that for me? Anyone with a good radio voice? John, did you raise your hand? Until you said that. <laughs> <laughs> or a decent radio voice. Okay, go ahead, John. You're the only volunteer. <laughs> but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Okay, thank you. So as the paragraph below explains, Paul uh, is writing a letter to who someone he calls his son in the faith, Timothy. And he is encouraging Timothy. Uh, Paul's at the end of his ministry. He is encouraging Timothy moving forward, and one of the things that he encourages him with is, is he pushes forward upon Timothy the primacy of God's word. He says this is, this is the essential thing that your ministry is supposed to be focused around. And it says here, towards the end of the paragraph, Paul charges Timothy in a way that could hardly be more weighty. He charges him in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and in view of his future judgment, his coming, and the establishment of his future kingdom on earth, his charge to preach the word despite the prophesied time when people will no longer want to hear is as timely today as it was when Timothy was alive. So let's look at that first question. How does Paul describe God's word in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16? I've got four things that I found here about how... How Paul describes God's word. What would you say? One thing he says it will make us wise. Okay. And and wise specifically to what? For salvation. For salvation. Right. So so the Bible the Bible is is the source of truth for how a man can be right with God. And that's one reason why it's very important. Okay. What's another thing that he says? about God's word. Useful. Okay? It's useful. What are the things that it's useful for? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Okay. Okay, right. So, so the Bible is a source of knowledge for us. As June was saying, it, it makes us wise. It's good to, when we do wrong, it's good to rebuke us. 
when we need correction, when we need to go another direction, it is, it is, it is essential. And for us to be righteous, for us to know what pleases God, and for us to, to work at it. The Bible actually says train in it. Um, we need the word of God. Uh, what, what else does it say? About God's word. Okay, it equips one to do good works. So, if you're if you're a Christian and you want to please God, and you're trying to figure out how in the world I don't know how to make decisions that please God, I don't know how to live in a way that pleases God, and you're just kind of caught in this in this constant, I wonder what He wants. You don't need to be you don't need to be caught in this in this constant cycle of wondering what it is that pleases God, because he has revealed what pleases him in his word. And um, it, takes, it takes training. It takes increased familiarity. It takes time. You don't pick up, as the first time you've ever read the Bible, you don't pick it up and start reading and, uh, and automatically know the wise choice for every situation in life. Uh, but we have Christians sometimes... And maybe, maybe we are some of these Christians where we're, we're, we're constantly not sure what we're supposed to be doing. Now that in itself isn't wrong, but some of us as Christians live in a constant state for a period of years, not really, not really being equipped to make wise decisions in life when we have opportunity to read the Word and find out what it is that we're supposed to be doing. So we are to take advantage of that. Well, I found one other thing, beginning of verse 16, which we've actually already covered, but one other thing, the beginning of verse 16. Inspired by God. Okay, it's inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. So, what he says, what Paul tells Timothy in verses 15 and 16, the word informs a person about the way of salvation. It is authoritative and errant because it originates with God. It's God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training, and it's able to equip us to do good works. So then move down to the next question. Why do you think his charge to Timothy is so forceful in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? Because that is a pretty forceful way of putting the primacy of the word forward. Why do you think it's so forceful? It says right there in the word that there's going to come a time when Timothy's preaching that he's going to face people that are not going to accept his preaching. Okay. Okay. And that's probably a that's probably a temptation as a minister, isn't it? A person who ministers the word. If if I've got people who don't want this and they might leave, I better give them what they want. Because I need these people to stay. So it's it's important for Timothy to know that hey people aren't going to want to hear this but this is what you got to give them anyway. Okay? That's, that's one thing. Any, anyone else have an idea of why this charge is so forceful? I just put, so there was no confusion for Timothy. Okay. Exactly what he was supposed to do, and, and us too. Okay. Right. So for, for Timothy, there's no confusion. If, if you're thinking, Timothy, you're, you're a young pastor, you're leading a church. What, what in the hierarchy of things that are important needs to be at the top? Well, at the very top, needs to be God's word. And you've got all kinds of other administrative tasks and and ministry tasks to take care of, but if those things aren't funneled through the grid of the word, then your flock that you are an overseer of is going to be headed 
in a wrong direction. And it tells us, uh, as Aaron has said, it tells us what to look for in a church. We've all got our preferences, don't we? Everybody in here has got something that they, that they would rather our church not be like. We've all got things that, that maybe we would do it this way. But at the top of our list needs to be, where, how is the word held in esteem at our church? And does our church not just say that it holds the word in esteem, but it does it actually hold it in esteem by it have being faithfully preached and taught? And does it control our practice? It's got to control our practice, too. We've got to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Anyone else have something to say about why this charge to Timothy is so forceful? People's souls are dependent on it. Okay. People's souls are dependent on it. What other way are we going to know what is going to make us wise into salvation? Is it just going to come to us in a flash? The means, the means by which people come to a saving knowledge of Christ is through the preached word. Hebrews talks about the feet being beautiful of those who bring good tidings of good news. That's the Matt Owen paraphrase. <laughs> I think that's what Bob Duke was talking about there. Okay. <laughs> um, but it talks, about, it talks about the people who, who having beautiful feet because they bring the good news of the word. In Romans, it says... How are they going to hear unless there be a preacher? And what is the foundation of what is preached? It's the Word. It's what Paul was encouraging Timothy to make the primary focus of his ministry. It was the most important thing. And people's souls are at stake. You see, this isn't just a, this just isn't just a preference, a different life choice, you know? Some people, you know, I have heard preachers on TV where... You know, they, they, have, they have huge churches, and they give small messages that are not biblically based at all, and they say, God hasn't called me to, to that aspect of things. Yes, he has. You know, God has called you to be faithful to the word, and that's what you've got to preach. Not your own thoughts, not your own self-help plan, not your three easy steps to this, that, or the other. Preach the word to people. That's what people need to hear. That's what we need. And people's souls are at stake. If people's souls are at stake, how could you do anything else? This is a serious charge that Paul gives to Timothy. All right, question three. How does Paul characterize people's attitude towards God's word in the last few verses? How does he characterize people's response to God's word? They're, rejected. they're going to reject it. Okay, how are they going to reject it? They won't like what they hear. Okay, they're not going to like what they hear. It says in, in <coughs> verse 3, they're not going to put up with sound doctrine. Listen, we're not going to have any of that around here, buddy. None of the sound doctrine. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to want something that feels good. They're going, to want, they're going to want somebody who is going to tell them what they want to hear. I mean, who wants to look into the mirror of God's word? I mean, have you, have you been reading your Bible or doing one of these lessons or you, you're, you're worshiping 
uh, in our worship services on Sunday morning, and you just get a big kick. I don't, we don't particularly like that. <laughs> I don't particularly want to do that. This is how I would like to respond to this situation. You're telling me that? Well, I'm going to go find somebody who will tell me what I want to do so that it's just easier. It'll be easier for everybody. There's going to be people who are not going to put up with sound doctrine. They are going, there are going to be people who are going to gather around them. It says a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And to avoid the truth they will be willing to hear almost anything else. Anything, give us anything but the truth. So the second part of that question, how do you see this attitude reflected in our, in our day? What are some examples of people not putting up with sound doctrine? Can you think of anything? Well, there's plenty of our churches alone change their views to accept certain lifestyles or certain... Uh, Ways of life that fit people, that, that people want to keep on their own agenda. Okay. Hate laws. Okay. Okay, that's a good example. What else? Sue? Just in my class in school a couple days ago, um, I was taking a psychiatry, history of psychiatry, and they, they, they said, word for word, medication save you, not Jesus. Mm. So it was very interesting. So it's everywhere. Yeah, it is everywhere. Okay. That's, that's a myth. That's a myth that people will turn aside from the truth to hear. It's not my problem. It's not my problem, and Jesus is not my solution. There's another solution. Any other examples that you can think of? People who aren't willing, going to put up with, with doctrine. Think of anything? to go to a football game than they went to church. <laughs> okay. Definitely, definitely easier to go to a football game than go to a church. Yeah. What about um, what about people who uh, stop preaching hell? That's a tough doctrine, isn't it? It's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to preach to people. And there are people, there are pastors who who won't preach it. It's too hard. Let's let's cut that part out. Don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to offend anybody. Or scare them. Or scare them. Because people won't be comfortable anymore. They might want to leave. They might be uneasy. They might not be happy. And so they won't preach on the dark. They won't preach on things like hell. And I've heard people in I have heard people, you know, prominent pastors in our country on Larry King and on Nightline. You know, they'll, they'll say, do you believe that Jesus is the way to salvation? And they'll say yes. And then they'll say, do you believe that Jesus is the only way? And their way of getting out of that is by saying, well, I'm not the judge. Well, that's true. We don't know people's hearts. And we're not, we're not playing judge. But are you denying the word? But I, can't, but I can say, on the basis of the word of God, a person who will not accept Christ is condemned. And that wasn't my idea. That's what the scripture says. But that doesn't play very well. <laughs> I saw that Larry King interview too, and it's going to start backtracking. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, well, you know, I. Uh... Yeah, and it and it has happened with with several prominent people. It it it. Uh, there's no denying that because. No, no, who was it? Rick Warren. <laughs> no, it wasn't Rick Warren. He didn't. He didn't do it. 
Um, I won't name names right now. There's a time for naming names, but I won't get a sidetracked right now. Uh, but you know, when the lights come on and the camera's rolling, it's hard to say the truth. And it's hard to say sound doctrine. But it's what we have to do. Can you think of any other examples of people who, who, who will not put up with doctrine? Just people in general. Yeah. Any majority of people. Right. Yeah. Okay. So then, let me uh, let me take it a let me take it a step even closer to home. Because <clears throat> the le- the last part of that question says, "Is there any sign of this in your own life?" So let me ask you this: Is there is there anywhere in you, in your life where it's difficult to hear, where you have other sources that are telling you other things? And you don't necessarily have to answer that question out loud. But are there situations in your life that you don't want to hear? I know there are in mine. You know, so people come to uh, their pastor all the time and ask for help. Or they'll come to a Christian in their church and they'll say, What should I do in this situation? And that person shares with them what God's word says. And they walk away and they don't take the advice. Because that's not the answer they wanted. And you know people like this, right? And then they go to another person and they ask them. And they go to another person and they ask them. And they go to another person and they ask them until they finally find somebody that agrees with them so they can do what they actually want to do. And it's not just other people. It's us. It happens to me and you. Because we all get in, we all get in situations in life where we're in a difficult we're in a difficult spot, and making the right choice is going to cost us. To to do the right thing, you're you're going to have to pay for it, and we don't want to do it. And we have to be careful also of the sources, um, the sources in our life lives, who are going to give us a a wrong worldview, a worldview that is not influenced by scripture. And there are all kinds of of television shows, you know, that you there's Oprah, who's a nice lady, and gives away a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of good things. But Oprah's no friend of Jesus. I mean she's she has 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 led our, the country in a in a meditation over one of her programs with uh, this guy named Eckhart, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, it's T-O-L-L-E, but this Eckhart guy who believes that we're all supposed to try to get in touch with this higher force and kind of be absorbed into it and try to meditate as a means of getting there, you know, but sometimes we as Christians, Oprah has more influence on our lives than the Word does. Why? Because we spend more time with Oprah than we do with the Word. Or whoever it is. And I'm not just picking on Oprah. I mean, whatever it is whatever it is in my life. What do I spend my time with? Who influences me? Who influences me to make the right choices? To love things that are pure and right and good? Who influences me? What influences you? To do those kinds of things. Is it the word? Or 
Or is it something else? We can't let it be something else. Because if we just take a lackadaisical attitude towards it, if we don't take a proactive attitude towards getting into the Word and reading it and doing the hard work of trying to understand, just by default, it will be something else. And over time, we will become the people that Paul tells Timothy about. The people who want to hear what they want to hear. And if you're not going to find, if you're not going to tell us what we want to hear, we'll find someone who does. We don't want to be this kind of people. And by God's grace, I don't think we are this kind of people. But we always have to make sure that we are treasuring the word, treasuring the word, rather than simply taking it for granted because we've got several copies on a bookshelf upstairs, downstairs, and in the garage. Let's look over then at a couple of other scriptures. Flip over to Psalm 1. And the question here, because we've just got about seven or eight minutes left, let me get to Psalm 1. The question here with each of these scriptures is, what, ask yourself what you, have to, what you have to gain by rightly responding to God's word. So in, from Psalm 1, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, just take a moment and zip through Psalm 1, and then let's get some answers. for what we have to gain by responding rightly to God's word. Stability in life. Okay. Stability in life. What else? Okay. The Lord watching over us. What else? tree that's planted by water where it can it can grow deep roots and it can be established and secure and founded. And I think that the text even used the word prosperous. Not necessarily prosper prospering financially, but prospering spiritually. But to be but to be those kind of people and to get those kinds of good effects, what kind of attitude do we have to have? What what is the kind of attitude that the, that Psalm one tells us we need to have towards God's word? Okay, we have to delight in it. Alright, so that's the first thing. We've got to delight in it. And what else? Think about it. Okay, we've got to think about it. We've got to meditate in it. So, you know, it's a contrast between the beginning of the psalm and the latter part of the psalm. In the beginning of the psalm, we have people who accept the counsel of the wicked. We have people who stand in the way of sinners. In other words, they're, they're, they're along the same path that sinners are going, the path of non-repentance, the path of going our own way, the path of doing our own thing. They're, they're standing in that way of sinners. They're accepting the counsel. They're saying, things aren't working out for me in this way or that. And, there's, and the, per, the person that's with them on the path is saying, well, here's what I think you need to do. And they've never cracked God's word open. They don't know what happens. They're like, you know what? I think you're right. That is what I need to do. That's, you're exactly right. I deserve better than this. And this is the direction I need to go. Rather, we've got to be people who 
As June and Aaron said, we delight in God's word, and we meditate on it day and night. In other words, we need to be people. We need to be people who are who are gaining a taste for God's word, and it is something that takes place over time. It's not something where you just start reading and everything all of a sudden makes sense and you're reading a genealogy that's three or four chapters long and it's so-and-so begat so-and-so and you can't read the names and you're, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? I'm not sure if I like this. But over time, as you get to understand things, you get to meet Christ in the scriptures. You need to see how the Old Testament points to Christ. You see the way God relates to you. You see that he has given you the power to please him. You see all of these wonderful things that give, you sec- that give you security. You know that no matter what you lose, even if you lose your life, you don't lose Christ, and you don't lose e- eternity. And you learn that if everyone in this whole world forsakes you, that Christ is with you. And that if you're completely alone, Christ is with you. And you learn that if you have to make a decision that costs... It's okay because it's going to be paid to you a hundredfold in heaven. You learn all these kinds of things about your relationship with God and the love that God has for you in Christ. And you become like that tree planted by water. The roots start going deep. And when life happens, it doesn't shake you because you're rooted and grounded in the word of God. And it becomes something that you it's just part of what you think about. When you're confronted with situations, you start thinking in biblical categories. When when problems come, you don't it doesn't kill you. Because you're rooted and grounded. You're like a tree planted by water. Uh, look at Matthew seven, twenty four and twenty seven. What's the benefit there? Well, it's what you were just talking about. What are you, what are you leading yourself with? What are you putting before you to, uh, to guide you? Okay. Okay. And Jesus talks about it as, as building a foundation either on sand or on rock. And it is possible. Is it not possible for us as Christians to unwittingly be building ourselves because we're not grounded in the word, is it possible for us to be building a foundation on sand? And we get totally taken by surprise when something happens. And we wonder, what in the world happened? And it's because we were building a foundation out of sand. Uh, Look at James. Skip to the last one. James 1, 22 to 25. benefit there. Freedom. Freedom. Now, that could, that's not necessarily the obvious thing. People sometimes think, oh, you believe the Bible? You're restricted. If you're going to follow that book, you're not going to be allowed to do certain things. And But the Word of God tells us 
that the that the that God's word gives freedom for those who continue in it, who look at the word, and don't just let their eyes glance through the pages, who don't just let the sermons on Sunday morning go in one ear and out the other, who don't just nod their heads, but who actually do the hard work of saying, I'm going to do my best to to have this book change me. And for the people who are changed by this book, we don't have time to look at it, but it's a living book. It says in Hebrews chapter chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is living and active. It's a living book because it's God's book. And if we will look into it and be doers and not just hearers, we will have freedom and we will be blessed in what we do. Well, of course, um, we've run out of time, as always. But does anyone have any thoughts you want to share? Something that you've been thinking that you want to want to share with us before we close? Something that I didn't say that you want want to be said? All right, let's pray then. And we'll come back next week and talk about prayer. Lord, I thank you for... Um, for the word, thank you for just giving us a little bit of time to talk about it tonight. I thank you that we have the word of God in our language, and that we have copies of it that we own, and that we could literally read it whenever we want. And Lord, we've got a lot of things going on in our lives. And so, of course, our purpose here tonight is not to provide a guilt trip on anyone. But Lord, whatever, whatever it means to each person in here to treasure the word, whether that be spending five minutes reading it, or spending ten minutes reading it, or fifteen, or, or reading it and reading a book along with it, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us to take steps of growth and our love and appreciation for it, knowing that you've graciously given it to us, and knowing that we have so much to gain from it. I pray that you'd help all of us to follow Jesus this week, to make choices that make you happy, to not think worldly thoughts, to not have worldly aspirations, to not be caught up by what's around us, but to be rooted and grounded in the values that your word has for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.